Welcome back to Counting to Five, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. I'm Mike, your host. Um, this is a special YouTube live stream being broadcast live Monday, June 25th, 2018 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. This live stream will also be posted as an episode of the Counting to Five audio podcast. So since the beginning of January, I've been holding these uh, live stream broadcasts every week on Thursday evenings to keep up to date with the latest Supreme Court news. And usually every Thursday we've been covering a week's worth of uh, Supreme Court news, opinions, whatever's going on at the court. Uh, however, we've now, we're now right in the middle of the end of term rush as the court, uh, uh, tries to get all of its pending cases decided and opinions out before the end of June. And, um, and there's just a lot of material coming out of, um, of the court last week. Uh, last Thursday's live stream ended up running extremely long. So, uh, to try something a little different, I'm, uh, I'm trying to break things up this week and I'm going to, uh, have a couple live streams, um, each one uh, covering less material to try and uh, uh, make it a little more manageable. So um, just to bring us up to date, last Thursday, I covered the opinions that were uh, issued on Monday and Thursday last week, and the court had decided nine cases between those two days. Um, the court uh, met again on uh, on Friday. They, they sat on the bench again on Friday to issue additional opinions and uh, handed down four more opinions on Friday. Now, those four opinions from Friday are the opinions that I'm going to cover in tonight's live uh, live stream. Uh, and just just to kind of uh, uh, finish the uh, the story of where we stand in the term right now, um, after those four opinions that were issued on Friday, the court had six opinions still left to be issued and was scheduled to um, uh, scheduled to, to issue opinions this morning, Monday, uh, Monday the 25th. Um, this morning the court, in, uh, issued two of those remaining six opinions and announced that it will be sitting again tomorrow to issue more opinions. Now, uh, the court usually in- indicates when, uh, the next, um, the next opinion issuance is going to be the last of the term and they did not do so for tomorrow. So we're expecting, um, so- some of the remaining Again, there's, there's, now there's four opinions left to be decided. Some of those remaining opinions we're expecting, uh, tomorrow, that's Tuesday. And then, uh, presumably at least one or more of those opinions will be coming on, uh, another opinion day later, uh, hopefully Wednesday, but, uh, we, we, uh, won't know until tomorrow when the next opinion day will be. So again, uh, two opinions were released this morning. Um, we're expecting more tomorrow morning and then, uh, uh, the court will finish out probably on Wednesday or Thursday, but we don't know for sure. Um, and, uh, so the plan right now, the tentative plan is, uh, again, tonight, uh, in this live stream, I'm going to cover the four decisions that came down on Friday. I'm not going to touch on, uh, on today's opinion. We'll have to wait until later, uh, today's two opinions. I will wait until later in the week for that. Um, hopefully if the court wraps up all its uh, opinions by Wednesday, then I'm planning on Wednesday night to do an episode just uh, devoted to those six opinions that uh, that will come down this week, uh, this morning's opinions and the and the rest of the opinions, assuming they all come down by Wednesday. So that's the plan, hopefully for Wednesday night, and then Thursday night. That's the normal my normal weekly time. I'm going to kind of do a little wrap up and uh, of the term and look forward. And in that one, I'll also look at the uh, the court's new grants. The court granted seven new cases this morning, and we'll talk about those. And then other uh, just other um, orders and other news about the court uh, um, in the, in the last week. So that that's the plan. Tonight we'll cover Friday's opinions, and then Wednesday and Thursday we'll wrap up uh, the rest of the week's news and kind of close out the term. So. Um, uh, without further ado, I think I'm going to just uh, dive right in to the the uh, four cases 
that came down on Friday. And um, the, the first of those four is a case called Western Gecko v. Ion Geophysical Corp. And, uh, and this is a patent case. And specifically, it's about the availability of uh, damages, patent damages for lost profits uh, outside of the United States. And uh, the court decided this uh, on a, a vote of seven to two with Justice Thomas writing the majority and um, the a dissent by Justice Gorsuch joined by Justice Breyer. Uh, so the, those were the two dissenters. And just uh, before I get into the opinions, a little background about the case. So patent law is generally territorial. In general, a, U, a U.S. patent only protects against patent infringement in the United States. But um, there are some provisions that go beyond that. You can't create an infring- infringing product in the United States for purposes of selling it abroad. And there are also um, some provisions that deal with creating the components for a patented invention, an invention that's covered by patents in the United States, creating those components in the United States, and then shipping them out of the United States for assembly into the finished infringing invention. And the, the, the particular provision that was at issue uh, in the court's decision here was, was a section of the patent code uh, uh, called Section 271F2. And basically what it did is it said that that if you supply a component that's specifically adapted for a use in a particular patented invention and you supply that component from the United States to be used in, in that invention, um, something that would, would have infringed that invention were it done in the United States, then you're liable for, an infri- for infringement as if, as if you had infringed that invention in the United States. Um, so that, that's the, that's the, the type of infringement that's at issue in this case. And the, uh, the damages provision that's, that's being litigated is another provision called section 284. And here's, here's what it says. It says the court shall award the claimant damages adequate to compensate for the infringement, but in no event less than a reasonable royalty for the use made by the invention, made of the invention by the infringer. Now, so it's, it's adequate to compensate for the infringement is the general language of, of what damages are available. Um, and let me just give this briefly the, the facts of this, uh, specific infringement at issue. Um, and then we can, uh, we can dig into the opinions. So the, the, uh, Western Gecko, um, the, uh, petitioner in this case, uh, that uh, Western Gecko has patents on certain technology that's used to map the ocean floor. And this is, this is used, uh, for oil and gas exploration. And Western Gecko didn't sell or license this technology. Instead, it was in the business of performing these ocean floor surveys. So it would, it would uh, employ, it would be uh, contracted by by um, you know, major uh, uh, petroleum companies to uh, to survey the ocean floor in particular areas. Um, the the uh, defendant or the uh, the respondent in this case is a company called Ion Geophysical. And they created an, a, uh, an imitation system, a system that, that basically was identical to the patented Western Gecko system. Um, but they, w- the infringement at issue here was they shipped uh, from the United States, they shipped components um, of this uh, to be used in this uh, system that would have been covered by the patent. They shipped them abroad to be assembled into the infringing system. They were found liable for infringement under that provision, that 271F2 um, provision, because of the, uh, they, they ship these components from the United States. So the question is, is Western Gecko entitled to, as part of its damages award, is it entitled to damages for lost profits um, outside of the United States? And w- what they proved at trial was they proved 10 specific lost contracts 
so this is contracts they would have been able they would have uh obtained uh for for this uh ocean floor mapping that they lost out to other companies that were using the uh the the infringing the product that was uh, infringing product um and they and they lost uh the uh, 93 million dollars in lost pro- profits due to these uh these 10 lost contracts so the the question is uh, these 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 uh contracts these lost profits were were for work that would have been performed outside of the United States, which is outside the normal territorial um, coverage of the uh, U.S. patent, are they entitled to that as damages for the infringement in this particular case? Um, and and uh, a core uh, principle in this in this case is is, uh, is is something known as the presumption against extraterritoriality, and that's the the basic idea that laws are generally presumed to only apply within the United States. Unless um, Congress specifies otherwise, uh, it's a presumption, and it can be overcome by by uh, you know evidence uh, in in the uh, the nature of the uh, statutory provisions that that it's intended to apply outside the United States. But that, that's the basic presumption. Um, and so the question is, does that apply to this damages provision here to say that this damages provision is really supposed to be for damages within the United States and not apply to those? So again, Justice Thomas wrote the majority. Um, and and what he does is is he looks at the the uh, the this presumption against extraterritoriality, and he says that usually when when courts are dealing with this presumption against extraterritoriality, there's there's two steps to it. The first they ask, has this presumption been rebutted? So is does the text provide some sort of clear indication that this statute is supposed to apply extraterritorially? But then uh, then he, he says if it's not rebutted, so if we're assuming that this is a, a, a statute that's supposed to have domestic application, then you ask the question, well, is the application of the statute that's at issue here, is it actually domestic or foreign? Here he says the court doesn't need to answer that first question because the second question is determinative here. He says we can just we, we can just ask the question of whether this is a domestic application of the statute. And he says in order to do that, we look at what is the statute's focus? What does it seek to regulate? And he says the provision at issue here, it has to be analyzed in the context of the entire statute. And the provision, this is section 284, the damages provision, it says that it's intended to provide damages adequate to compensate compensate for the infringement. So the infringement is the focus of the statute. So so he's asking, uh, is the infringement that's at issue here, is that within the United States? Well, the the um, the provision, that 271F2 provision, is for infringement for supplying certain components in or from the United States. So he says, the conduct that creates the infringement in this case, this, this is ion uh, geophysicals supplying of components from the United States, that's domestic conduct. That's conduct that they, that occurred within the United States. So he says that's a domestic application of this law. We don't have to worry, um, about, uh, where the, the damages are, are coming from. It's the, the infringement, which is the focus of this law happens in the United States and everything else follow, follows from there. And then he talks about the damages provision. He says damages aren't the statute's focus. They're just the means of remedying the targeted infringement. He says these overseas events, the the overseas events underlying the the damages award, are incidental to the infringement, and they don't have the primacy uh, for purposes of uh, the extraterritoriality determination. 
and he says that, that all um he, he then he he goes into the specific language of the damages provision when it, which talks about it being uh, damages uh, adequate to compensate for the infringement and he says that that concept of something being adequate to compensate for the infringement means it should place the patent owner in the position that the patent owner would have been in had the infringement never occurred in the first place which can include lost profits um and and so here those lost profits wherever they occurred uh should be included in that calculation now justice gorsuch dissented again uh, joined by justice Breyer. And um, he doesn't uh, dispute the majority's analysis of the presumption against extraterri- uh, uh, extraterritoriality, although he does uh, just briefly in passing seem to, um, to kind of uh, throw a little shade on the entire doctrine by referring it to referring to it as quote the, the judicially created presumption against the extraterritorial application of statutes. And uh, given Gorsuch's judicial ideology, his his uh, very um, uh, vocal expressions of um, of uh, support for things like uh, textualism and, and originalism, uh, that's that's kind of uh, seems seems like somewhat of a disparaging label um, coming from him. But in any case, he doesn't dispute that. Um, but he 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 again he points specifically to to the patent laws. Um, core purpose. And he says patent law protects only U.S. manufacturer use and sale. Um, to infringe a patent, you, you have to make, use, offer, or sell a patent invention within the United States. He says these lost profits are from foreign use, and that foreign use that, that led to the lost profits, uh, those those companies that the overseas that were uh, using this uh, using the, the, this invention that would have infringed had it been in the United States, well, that overseas use is not infringement. Um, it doesn't violate the, the patent law, so so it isn't a proper basis for a damage award. Um, he says the uh, foreign use of technology just doesn't interfere with the domestic monopoly that the patent law is supposed to um, create. And he, he says uh, that even if uh, even if this was um, an entirely U.S. manufactured product um, that was shipped for foreign use, those foreign uses. Um, are non-infringing and can't create that kind of uh, liability. He says that the majority actually creates an anomaly here because it creates greater protection f- against the export of a component than it would for the entire product. Um, and he also criticizes the majority's rule, saying that it allows bootstrapping, basically, of a domestic violation into potentially global product, uh, profits. Um, he says he doesn't. The majority doesn't explain why the damages adequate to compensate for the infringement should include damages that come that are harm from non-infringing uses. Uh, so that's that's uh, the opinion and Gorsuch's response. And so let's move on to the next case uh, uh, the court decided on Friday. Uh, uh, this is a case called Courier v. Virginia, and this is a case about double jeopardy. And um, uh, specifically, it, it's a uh, related to uh, it's about a doctrine related to double jeopardy, um, known as um, issue preclusion, or uh, sometimes referred to as collateral estoppel. That's a kind of an old older term for it. Um, but th- this is this is um, the 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 core idea of double jeopardy that that people are probably familiar with is the idea that someone can't be tried multiple times for the same crime. So someone's tried once for a particular crime, whether they're convicted or acquitted, they can't be tried again for that, uh, that same uh, crime in another trial. Now um, there's a separate concept uh, known as issue preclusion. And this is the idea that if, uh, if someone is acquitted of a particular crime and 
um, the the uh, the jury in acquitting that person necessarily had to have rejected certain um, factual determinations uh, in 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 making in acquitting of that conduct. Um, then those factual determinations should be preclusive on a future trial, so it should prevent the government from trying to relitigate that same point. That's the issue preclusion idea. So we're going to see how this comes into play in this case. Now, this was a um, five to four. Uh, decision, uh, and and it, and it broke down along the uh, stereotypical conservative liberal lines. So you had a five justice majority written by Justice Gorsuch. You had a four justice dissent um, written by Justice Ginsburg. Now there was also a concurrence by Justice Kennedy in part. Now Justice Kennedy joined parts of Justice Gorsuch's majority, but he was not willing to go as far as the other justices in the majority. So I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Now. First, I want to briefly mention this issue preclusion idea. It's sometimes referred to as the Ash Doctrine from a case called Ash v. Swenson. And, and just very briefly give the facts of that case just to, um, to, to explain, uh, this, uh, this issue preclusion idea. Now, Ash v. Swenson involved an armed robbery, uh, of six men at a private poker game. So it was a private poker game. Six people were there. Uh, robbers burst in. They robbed the six men. Now, Ash was charged with the robberies. And he was charged as being one of the one of the the robbers who who was there uh, in, engaged in this uh, in this uh, robbery. He was tried for the robbery of one man. He was tried for the robbery of one of the six people there, but he was acquitted. And there were apparently uh, identification questions. Uh, the the there was a uh, the his defense was that he he was misidentified and was not one of the people there. Now there was no dispute that a robbery had occurred. Of all six of the of the the men at that at the poker game, um, he was acquitted of the uh, when he was tried for the robbery of just one of those six men. Now the government then tried to go forward and try him for the robbery of another of the six men at that same robbery, and this went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said that double jeopardy prevented a later trial because. The only issue at that first trial was whether he was actually there involved in the robbery and the jury had acquitted him. The government couldn't go ahead and then try him again for the, for, uh, on a different, um, uh, a different charge, charge of robbery arising out of that exact same circumstance because that would, that would be contradicting the jury's acquittal because they would have to be necessarily have to be finding, um, uh, something that's in conflict with the, the facts the jury had to have found to acquit him. So that's, that's the, that's the, the, the original the uh, case that kind of um, originated this uh, issue preclusion um, doctrine, this idea that, that certain facts in, in an acquittal are um, preclusive on a uh, on a future um, prosecution. So, the facts in this particular case um, involved a, a theft from a uh, a theft of a safe uh, from from a home. And so there was there was a a, a, a robbery. A, a safe was stolen, and this safe contained uh, a, a significant amount of money, as well as a number of firearms. And um, the uh, the safe was eventually recovered where it had been uh, dumped in a river, and the guns were still inside it, but the money was gone. Now um, the uh, courier, the uh, the criminal defendant in this case, courier was charged with uh multiple charges he was charged with breaking and entering and grand larceny related to this uh this uh this burglary but he was also um charged with uh felon in uh, as being a felon in possession of a firearm now he he had a uh, prior convictions 
for breaking and entering in grand larceny. So that made him a felon who was, uh, who, who was not allowed to possess firearms. The only basis for this felon in possession charge was these firearms in the stolen safe. So the idea that is that when the, uh, the burglars opened the safe, to take all the money out, they were in possession of the firearms at the time that they were removing the money from the safe. Um, so, so that was the the only facts uh, there. Now, he the under Virginia law, um, he was entitled to have the possession, the felon in possession charge, severed from the other charges for purposes of trial. Now, the the, the idea of this is, um, in order to uh, convict someone of being a felon in possession of a firearm, you need to produce the the government needs to present evidence that the person is in fact a felon, that they have prior felony convictions. Um, but the fact that someone has these prior felony convictions can be highly prejudicial. It can it can kind of cause a jury to uh, to be uh, much more likely to uh, want to convict someone, to, to believe that someone's guilty of whatever they're accused of. So in order to avoid the prejudice that comes from this uh, felony being uh, being introduced on the other charges, Virginia allows um, a felon in possession charge to be severed. That means that, that he was entitled to have two separate trials, one on the theft charges, the breaking and entering and the grand larceny, where the government would not be allowed to introduce evidence of his prior felony convictions, and a second uh, trial on the uh, the firearm charge where the government could uh, introduce that evidence. Now, what happened was he was tried on the breaking and entering and grand larceny charges. He was acquitted on both those charges. And then the state moved ahead to, to try him again uh, on the felon in possession charge. In that case, he was uh, he was tried, he was convicted uh, and, and sentenced to prison for being a felon in possession. Now, he argued that this violates this issue preclusion idea because if he was acquitted in the first trial, the jury necessarily found he wasn't involved in the, the theft of this safe, and that was the only facts involved in the felon in possession charge. That was the, the only basis for that charge was his involvement in the in the burglary, um, and that's the, the time in which he was alleged to have uh, come into possession of the firearms. So he argued that the same idea from the Ash case uh, should prevent him from being retried. So that's that's the case as it comes here. Um, and the the uh, so so l- let me. Uh, um, move on from there to to the the opinions in this case. And again, Justice Gorsuch wrote the majority in this case, and um, and he he relies on some precedents of the court. And one of the key ones is a case called Jeffers v. United States from 1977. Um, and this was a case where a defendant was uh, was tried for uh, uh, greater and lesser included offenses. So that there's a, there's a concept in uh, criminal uh, charges of uh, greater and lesser included offenses. And the idea is sometimes there are multiple different levels of a particular crime. Um, and you can think of a classic example being, uh, you know, first and second degree murder. Um, and where one of the, the, the crimes is considered to be included within the other, this, the elements you need to prove to prove one of the crimes, um, it's, is, is, uh, it's just... This, the, the greater crime is that plus some additional elements on top of that. So they're, they're kind of two different levels of the same crime. And there's a longstanding um, precedent that double jeopardy applies when you have greater and lesser um, uh, included offenses. If someone is um, uh, acquitted or convicted on one of those two, on the greater or the lesser, they can't later be tried on the other. Um, now, in this Jeffers case, the defendant, Jeffers, uh, sought separate trials of greater and lesser included offenses. So for, for strategic reasons, he wanted those to be tried separately, uh, and they were. And he was convicted 
um, on the lesser offense. Uh, and then he sought to block the trial on the greater offense uh, using this double jeopardy concept. The court said, uh, no, the Supreme Court ruled that there was no double jeopardy because he consented to splitting this into two trials. Now, normally he would have the conviction on the first one. Um, even though it was a conviction, it would have prevented the government from then trying to um, trying to try him on the, the greater charge. Uh, but his consent to splitting it um, meant that double jeopardy didn't apply. Now, Gorsuch says that this case here uh, it follows from that. He says uh, here we're not dealing about the, the same crime, uh, which is the classic double jeopardy of the greater and lesser included offenses, but we're dealing with this issue preclusion idea. Um, and, he, and he says that there's no real difference for double jeopardy purposes between whether the, the original trial was a conviction, as in the Jeffers case, or an acquittal, as in Courier's case here. Um, and he points to some other precedents, uh, saying, for example, when someone moves for a mistrial, uh, when a defendant says that, there, that the the judge must declare a mistrial because uh, because of some uh, something that happened during the course of the trial, um, that uh, basically allows the government to retrial try someone. It, it, it acts as if it's consent to a retrial, um, and double jeopardy doesn't apply. Uh, and he says uh, here, uh, Courier was definitely put to a difficult choice. Um, if he had, if he had elected to have everything tried together in a single trial, which, uh, Virginia could have constitutionally done, um, it might have, uh, disadvantaged him because that, um, the, his prior convictions could have been introduced and that might have really harmed him. Um, but that's not un- unconstitutional. And, uh, those could have been tried together. The, the judge could, would have given jury instructions, instructing the jury not to use the prior convictions for certain purposes. Um, but it would have been perfectly constitutional to do so. So Courier was put to a choice. He had an option of trying these separately or letting them be tried together, but it wasn't an unconstitutional choice. Uh, he had, he had difficult choices, but that was his choice to make. And by choosing to try them separately, um, he, uh, he, he effectively consented, um, to, uh, to, to the second trial and, uh, and did not, um, uh, cannot claim the protections of double jeopardy. Now, um, Gorsuch's opinion goes on and, but this portion of the, of the opinion is not joined by Justice Kennedy. I'll come back to Justice Kennedy in a few minutes. Um, Justice Gorsuch goes on to, to examine this whole issue preclusion idea, um, in more detail. And and he basically casts uh, doubt on the entire concept. He says that the, the language of the double jeopardy clause that protects someone from quote t- uh, being quote twice put in jeopardy for the same offense, and he compares this, for example, to the language of the Seventh Amendment, which protects the right to a jury trial, and which specifically says, "No fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States," etc. Um, and and he says there, look on the Seventh Amendment, where they're protecting this jury right, it, it's very specific, it's very explicit about dealing with specific facts that a jury has decided. But when we're talking about double jeopardy, it's just talking about the same offense, um, and and so he, he points to that kind of textual difference. And then he points to uh, history, and he goes through English common law history and early U.S. history. And uh, and his argument is just that this uh, issue preclusion idea um, just was not protected, even even for cl- um, uh, offenses with uh, overlapping facts. Um, there's no historical um, basis for this issue preclusion idea. Um, and, and and so uh, so so he 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 kind of um, is uh, is rejecting. Uh, or casting a doubt on this entire idea of uh, of issue preclusion that comes from this Ash case, um, and and he also points to some some 
practical effects. He says, if we take this idea seriously, would it allow the government to do the same thing? Would it allow the government to use this issue preclusion idea um, in an offensive manner against the defendant? For example, if a defendant was convicted in a first trial and certain facts were established, could the government go into a second criminal trial on a, on a, a different um, but overlapping charge and, and, uh, and argue that the jury could not, um, re-decide those facts that, uh, had been established in the government's favor in the first case. And, uh, he, he also points, Gorsuch also points to the fact that, as I mentioned before, Virginia did not have to split this into two separate trials. They didn't have to allow him to sever this. Um, but he notes that some states are much more generous than others about severing charges. Um, having multiple trials has increased expenses. There's a lot of inconvenience. Uh, witnesses have to come and testify multiple times. But nevertheless, some states allow it uh, more than they uh, they more than they have to for constitutional reasons. And Gorsuch uh, says uh, basically a broad application of this um, of this issue preclusion idea uh, w- would likely have the the effect of of, um, of discouraging states from allowing these kind of severances. It would create a, a uh, uh, more of a cost to them of doing so, and uh, it would make them less inclined to allow these kinds of severances. So uh, that's Justice Gorsuch's majority opinion. Now, Justice Kennedy uh, concurred, and what he says is basically he says this entire case is resolved on the issue of consent. So he agreed. He joined the beginning of Justice Gorsuch's opinion and said the fact that Courier consented to um, trying these charges separately answers the question, and he doesn't think it was necessary for Gorsuch to go on to this broader question of the issue preclusion doctrine generally. Um, and he says he expresses uh, no view, basically. He expresses no view in this opinion on that broader question. He, he just wanted to resolve it solely on the consent issue. So that brings me to the dissent. Now, Justice Ginsburg wrote the dissent for four justices. And what she does is she says that the double jeopardy protection really serves two separate purposes. One of those two purposes is the uh, is avoiding multiple trials for the same offense. And this applies. This is a classic double jeopardy. It can't be tried twice for the same offense. And this applies regardless of uh, whether the first uh, trial results in a conviction or an acquittal. It also includes greater and lesser included offenses. But it... it um, it's a protection that just, just just says the government just can't keep retrying someone for the same offense. It doesn't matter if they're convicted the first time or acquitted the first time. One try, and that's it, um, and that's the end. Now, But she says there's a separate principle that the double jeopardy clause is also supposed to serve, and that's the finality of acquittals. In our, in our legal system, in our criminal justice system, acquittals – um, carry an enormous amount of weight. Now, normally, like if, if an acquittal, if someone is acquitted in front of a jury trial, uh, the the government can't appeal uh, an acquittal, even if um, there may have been errors in the trial or errors in jury instructions that uh, that went to the disadvantage of the government. Um, the government is precluded normally from can't, and can't um, appeal an acquittal. Acquittals have this uh, enormous um, uh, amount of. Uh, uh, respect in our, our legal system. And so, so she says that supports this, this rule from the Ashby Swenson case, this issue preclusion, um, principle. And that's a separate and distinct principle from the multiple trials, um, uh, protection. Um, and, and what she says is that there's case law, the, the Supreme Court's case law clearly establishes that this issue preclusion concept applies regardless of whether there's any prosecutorial overreach or misconduct. Um, so even when trials are severed for purposes that benefit the defendant, um, the, the, this issue preclusion idea still applies. So the fact that this uh, severance here um, went to 
couriers uh, was was for couriers uh, benefit because it would not allow the uh, his prior convictions to be introduced in the uh, in the breaking and entering and, and larceny charges. Um, it, it that doesn't that doesn't stop this principle from applying. And she says that normally constitutional rights, um, in order to to uh, there's a high burden to show that someone has waived a constitutional right. Um, and here she says that, 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 uh, that burden is not met here. She says that, that there was no express waiver of this issue preclusion idea. He agreed to have two separate um, trials of these different charges, but never agreed that a, uh, acquittal uh, in, in the first should have no impact on the second. Um, and Ginsburg says that waiving a constitutional right by conduct, so for example, just by his consent to do that, um, that that is was, was only available in a narrow set of circumstances when a defendant acts in some way that's completely inconsistent with exercising the right at issue. Um, but here, there's nothing inconsistent about agreeing to two trials um, and uh, and then arguing for this issue preclusion because she says issue preclusion doesn't bar a retrial; it only bars retrial on a particular particular theory of the crime. So for example, going back to that original the Ash case, the one about the um the uh the robbery of six men at a poker game. Um the idea of issue preclusion wouldn't have prevented a retrial of Ash on a theory, for example, that Ash drove the getaway car for the robbery and was guilty of it in that in that sense, because that wouldn't contradict the the um facts that the jury necessarily found in the first trial. Um so it, it doesn't prevent the retrial just prevents a particular theory of the retrial, a theory that has been um, has been necessarily uh, uh, dismissed by the jury. So here in Courier, again, it wouldn't prevent this. It wouldn't have prevented the state from retrying Courier on uh, a theory, for example, that Courier met up with the robbers after the robbery and and, and uh, was involved in emptying out the safe, um, because that wasn't the theory that the jury. Uh, dismissed in the first in the first trial, um, so she says there's nothing inconsistent about agreeing to separate trials uh, and then later um, wanting to uh, to have uh, this issue preclusion idea apply. And she says none of the cases that the majority relies on involved a prior acquittal. Um, they they all involved cases where the person was convicted in the first trial or um, before of when uh, when. Uh, there, when there had been no verdict, when a trial was ended or dismissed or there's a mistrial for some reason before uh, a verdict was reached in the first trial. And so she says the idea of this, uh, the finality of acquittals, um, uh, the, the, the uh, majority's cases don't support um, the, the lack of respect for that, uh, that, that concept. Um, now, Ginsburg explicitly chooses not to engage the Plurality. That's Gorsuch when he's not speaking for um, Justice Kennedy when he's just writing for four ju- uh, justices. Uh, she chooses. She and she explicitly says she's not engaging in the historical challenge to the entire doctrine of issue preclusion. So the the Gorsuch's suggestion that the whole idea, starting with the Ash case, isn't sound and 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 uh, isn't there. Ginsburg just says she's not she's not going to address that. Um, so uh, that's uh, that's it for uh, for Courier. Um, so let's move on to two more cases. Now these get a little more involved, a little, a little, little bit more complicated, but I'll try and, um, run through each of them. Now the, the first case I'm going to talk about is a case called Ortiz v. United States. Now this case was, um, was originally, it was actually three consolidated cases at the Supreme Court. The other two cases, uh, along with Ortiz were called Dalmazi. Uh, the United States and Cox v. United States. Um, but I'll explain, as I'll explain um, a little bit later, those other two cases, uh, the court um, 
split the cases back apart for purposes of decision here and it only issued an opinion in Ortiz and ended up dismissing the other two cases. Um, and I'll, exp- I'll explain that uh, when I get to the end, I'll explain the, the situation there. Um, but these, these are cases uh, challenging um, the legality of, uh, of certain uh, judges that were serving on the criminal courts of appeal uh, the, or court of criminal appeals uh, for uh, for two branches of the armed services, the, the Army Court of Criminal Appeals and the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, and uh, there was an argument um, that the service of certain judges on those courts was, was unlawful. Um, let me let me just um, kind of give some basic background here. Um and the the defendants in each of these three cases, so Ortiz and the defendants in the other two consolidated cases, um, were all uh, service members who had been convicted of crimes in military courts. And now here, there's a couple acronyms involved in this case, and I'll just try and explain them uh, briefly. There's the CCAs, which are the Courts of Criminal Appeals, which I mentioned, and these are um, these are courts within the uh, the the military that hear appeals from courts martial. So if someone's convicted in a court in a court martial, um, they can appeal to the court of criminal appeals uh, for their particular branch of the military. Um, and then um, those uh, cases from the, the the CCAs, the courts of criminal appeals, can be further appealed to the court of appeals for the armed forces, or the CAAF is the acronym for that, and that's the highest appeals court for the military system. It's it's above the CCAs. And then um, cases at the CAAF, that Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, those can be uh, appealed up to the Supreme Court through the the, the, the court's normal the certiorari process, where that where you petition the Supreme Court and ask the court to take those cases. That's significant, and that's something I'll be coming back to in a minute. So we have the CCAs, which is the Court of Appeal that that reviews a, a court martial. And then the CAAF, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, at the top of the military system. Now, the other um, separate court that's involved in this case is referred to as the CMCR, which is the Court of Military Con- Commission Review. And this is a court that reviews, that that's, uh, sits in, in uh, appeal, uh, hears appeals of military commissions. So these are, for example, the, the commissions um, in Guantanamo that... Uh, that uh, um, that adjudicate um, uh, the status of uh, enemy combatants um, from from uh, from Afghanistan, for example, held in in Guantanamo. Um, and so the CMCR is is the the uh, court that, that hears appeals from those military commissions. Now, um, here's what the case is basically about. There's a federal law that dates back to 1870 that disqualifies um, active duty military personnel from simultaneously serving in a civil office. This is referred to as the, uh, the dual office holding ban. Um, now, the, the, that law, it's, it's, it's been in place since 1870. The current law has certain exceptions, um, but it, it uh, among other things, it prohibits military personnel from holding offices that require a presidential appointment and Senate confirmation. Now, part of the purpose of this was there's concern after the Civil War. Uh, there were so many um, uh, prominent people serving in uh, military uh, as military officers, and there's a concern that the the government, uh, the federal government, would become um, fall under the sway of the military by having uh, high office holders in the federal government um, simultaneously serving in military positions. And so this uh, this dual office holding uh, prohibition came went into place. Now, the the issue here is 
that um, in, in each of the cases that was at issue here, one of the judges sitting on the CCA, the Court of Criminal, uh, the Crimin- uh, Court of Criminal Appeals for for a military branch, one of the judges on, on uh, sitting on that, that each of those courts was um, was appointed to the CMCR, the uh, the, the Commission for uh, the uh, Court of Military Commission Review. Now, the Court of Military Commission Review. Um, the, the appeals from that go to the civilian courts. Um, the president can appoint either civilians or military personnel to the CMCR. So the argument is this CMCR, the judges on that, that's a civil office. Um, and so this civil office, this should, this should, um, this should fall under this dual office holding ban that someone who's a military officer, like the, these judges in the CCA, um, should be barred from serving on the CMCR. Um, so the, this challenge was brought um arguing that that, that that was that that was unlawful and also um the argument was made that the, that um that there was a, traditionally the remedy for this type of uh dual office holding if someone was a military officer and then took on uh it was appointed to an in, inconsistent civil office um the remedy was that they would be immediately terminated fr- uh, from uh, their military service um so that so the idea was upon being seated on the CMCR um, they, by, by, by law, they would no longer, um, be able to be a member of the military and therefore, um, their, uh, service on the CCA would have, um, would have, uh, had to have uh, ceased at that point. So that's the basic idea of the challenge. Um, there's, 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 uh, so that, uh, there were, there was a separate, along with that, uh, the statutory argument about this dual office holding ban, there was also a challenge under the appoint, appointments clause of the constitution. Um, and that is the appointments clause is a clause of the constitution that, that indicates how, um, federal officers are, are, um, can be appointed. And the constitution distinguishes between principal and inferior officers. Principal officers have to be appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, but inferior officers can be appointed in other manners. And the argument here was that the CCA judges um, are inferior officers, where the CMCR uh, judges are allegedly principal offices. And the argument was made that there's an inconsistency with with someone holding a principal and inferior office at the same time, and that violates the appointments clause. Um, so that's the, that's the basic arguments here. But there was one more kind of big uh, monkey wrench in this case. Which was um, that one of the, uh, the, the an argument was made by an amicus, so that's uh, someone who's not a party to the case. And in this case, it was a law professor named Aditya Bamzai, um, who made the argument that in fact the Supreme Court had no jurisdiction to hear appeals from the CAAF. Now, the court has heard appeals from the CAAF um, a number of times over the years, but the argument was the Supreme Court actually has no jurisdiction over that, and the reason was the Supreme Court. Um, has certain narrow categories of, of, of what is known as original jurisdiction. That means cases that can be brought directly in the Supreme Court. And that's a very narrow category. The Supreme Court, uh, it's, it's, um, the most common, uh, type of those are interstate disputes when one state directly sues another state. But it's very, it's very narrow. Now, most of the cases the court hears are in its appellate jurisdiction, meaning it's, it's hearing things as a, as a, a court of appeal, um, hearing an appeal from another court. And, um, the argument here is the CAAF is not a real court. It's not a court. Um, it's not part of the judicial branch of the uh, federal government. It's actually part of the executive branch as, as a, as a, um, a part of the military. And therefore, this is not actually an appeal 
really um, going from the CAAF to the Supreme Court would be a brand new judicial action because there's no existing judicial action to bring in uh, to the Supreme Court. So the argument here, so so the court the court chose to address that argument and actually uh, had the uh, amicus, the law professor, argue at oral argument um, on that point. Um, and so that with that background in place, I'm going to uh, dive into the opinions now. Justice Gore, uh, Justice uh, Kagan, I'm sorry, wrote the majority opinion, um, and and that was uh, that was an opinion for seven uh, justices. And she starts with that jurisdictional issue, the one I just mentioned about whether uh, the Supreme Court can hear. Uh, an appeal from the CAAF. And um, what, what she argues is, um, she says that, that the, the key language is is um, other cases. The, the, um, the appellate jurisdiction uh, goes, goes, goes to other cases in, cer- in certain categories. And, and she says that um, under a common sense, ordinary understanding of, of, uh, of, of what is an, a case, that can be appealed to the Supreme Court. The military proceedings involved here involve a case uh, in a court. Um, she says that the military system is judicial in character. It functions uh, analogously to the federal judicial system, has a similar structure and jurisdiction. It has a very well-established constitutional pedigree. The courts martial actually predate the Constitution. Um, and uh, despite its its placement you know, within the military, um, it's judicial. It's judicial in character, and even when it's uh, serving a, um, a a military purpose in imposing discipline on the on the uh, the military personnel, um, it's done in a judicial way through judicial processes and procedures. Um, and then she points, uh, in addition to this, to other um, courts that are outside. Of um, the the judicial branch of the federal government. Now, uh, in um, legal talk, the, the the phrase Article Three is used gen- just uh, in general to refer to the judicial branch of the federal government, because in the Constitution, Article Three is the is the uh, the article of the Constitution that establishes the federal judiciary. Article One establishes the legislature. Article Two is the executive branch of the presidency, and Article Three is the judiciary. So, Article Three courts refer to courts that are federal part of the federal judicial um, branch. Um, but the Supreme Court can hear, and uh, it's well-established, can hear appeals from um, courts that are outside of Article Three, And this includes state courts, for example. Um, but it also includes, uh, the, within the federal government, but outside of uh, the judicial branch, federal territorial courts. So this is, for example, this would include territories like the, the U.S. Virgin Islands, um, where they have their own court system, but it's not a state of the United States. It's a, it's federally governed, um, but it has its own court system that's been established there by Congress. Um, that also um, involves the the local court system in the District of Columbia. So the District of Columbia is uh, is controlled um, indirectly by the federal government. It was established by the federal government, and it's, it's, it's the government of the District of Columbia was established by Congress. Um, but it has its own court system that functions um, just much like a, a state court system um, would function. Um, and Congress has authority to, uh, or the I'm sorry, the Supreme Court has authority to hear appeals uh, directly from the uh, the DC uh, the local courts there, um, and. So, so Justice Kagan, kind of by analogy to these, uh, says says that the military is is basically um, basically the, sa- the same way, um, and she 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 also distinguishes it. She says although these military courts, the courts martial, are within the executive branch, 
Um, she distinguishes this from other actions by executive fish officials, which are not reviewable by the, uh, in the Supreme Court directly, don't fall within the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction. Um, uh, just by, by, by referring to this judicial, this judicial character of them, the, the, the fact that they're, they're, uh, you know, courts, uh, issuing judicial decisions, uh, and that's what makes them reviewable. Uh, but she leaves open the question of whether there might be appellate authority over other uh, executive um, branch adjudicating bodies. Uh, she kind of leaves that question open and doesn't address it. Um, but again, so with that jurisdictional question out of the way, she gets goes on to this dual office holding issue. And what she does is she she talks about the the, the statutory bar to dual office holding. Um, so the the provision at issue is uh, is uh, referred to as Section 973B2A, and that prohibits active duty military officers from holding or exer- exercising the functions of certain civil o- offices. But there's an important uh, uh, exception. It says, except as otherwise authorized by law. And what she says is another provision of law act- does otherwise authorize this. And what it is is there's a provision um, uh, relating to the um, the CMCR. This is the, the, the Court of Military Commission Review. There's a provision of that that explicitly says that the Secretary of Defense may assign um, officers serving on a CCA, that's the Military uh, uh, Court of Criminal Appeals, uh, so the Secretary of Defense may assign an officer serving on that to be a judge on the CMCR. And so, uh, just, uh, Kagan says, that right there is the authorization. That, uh, that otherwise authorizes the, uh, the, this military officer to serve on this, in this civil office. Now the argument from the, uh, the, the defendant Ortiz in this case was that in the, in, in, the, in, in these particular cases, the judges, uh, judges at issue were assigned to the CMCR by the Secretary of Defense, but a decision was made later that to have the president um, afterwards appoint them also to the CMCR, the other way someone can get on the CMCR, by presidential appointment and confirmation by the Senate. Um, and the argument is that that provision, the, a separate provision that allows for the president to appoint and have the Senate confirm someone to that doesn't expressly reference military officers. Unlike the Secretary of Defense provision, which was specifically about military officers, the presidential appointment section doesn't refer to military officers and allows uh, the president to appoint uh, civilians uh, to those positions also. And so the argument was that that doesn't fit within the exception to the dual office holding ban. Now, Justice Kagan says this is irrelevant because here the president's appointment didn't undo the secretary's appointment. The secretary of defense had appointed them. The president appointed them. um, And those two things were not incompatible. It was just a double appointment. And and, uh, it was authorized by the the first of those when the secretary appointed. Um, So so that's irrelevant. And Justice Kagan says because of that, there's no need to address the question of whether had the, the had these judges only been appointed by the president under the under the provision for presidential appointment whether that also uh, would have uh, satisfied the otherwise authorized provision no need to get into that here because the secretary of defense's appointment clearly meets the standard um and she also says there's no need to decide because it actually is an open issue whether the CMCR judges uh, whether, whether that is in fact a civil office subject to this dual office holding ban in the first place and no need to deal with the remedial issue. That is whether if there had been a conflict under the dual office holding provision, whether that would require termination of military service, no need to get into to any of that because in fact it was authorized. 
Um, so this brings me to the, the, the constitutional issue, the appointments clause issue. And this is the alleged conflict between someone simultaneously holding an inferior office and a principal office. Um, and uh, Justice Kagan quickly disposes of this and basically just says there's no support for this incompatibility argument. Um, she says that that that, that, uh, that there's just uh, no cases or, or no authority um, that, that says that this conflict uh, is unconstitutional. And then she says even even if 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 uh, if, if there there were some something to this in this particular case there's no plausible story about why there's some conflict between here there's no reason why there'd be some sort of undue influence by having someone who is a principal officer on the cmcr also serve as an inferior officer on the cca she says here's a quote the two courts do not have any overlapping jurisdiction they're parts of separate judicial systems adjudicating different kinds of charges against different kinds of defendants so she dismisses um that argument so that that uh, that resolves the case for Justice Kagan. So that moves me on to uh, Justice Thomas, who had uh, his own concurrence. Now he says he agrees entirely with the majority, but he goes on to he wants to to discuss in more detail the issue of Article Three. That's the judicial branch under the Constitution. Um, and what he what he argues is he believes that the the court cannot exercise um, appellate jurisdiction so the supreme court can't exercise a, uh, appellate jurisdiction unless it's reviewing an exercise of judicial power now um this this uh, judicial um the, the appeals don't have to come from a specific type of tribunal. They don't have to come from an, an Article Three court. So they don't have to be part of this federal judicial power from the Article Three court. But they do have to be an exercise of judicial power. Now, this explains why the Supreme Court can hear appeals from state courts, because they are exercising the state's own judicial power, not the federal judicial power. Um, but he, he argues um, that... The, 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 this explains uh, some of the, the exceptions here. He says here, um, Congress, just like Congress um, can could, could establish in uh, the territories, it could establish uh, these uh, judicial um, uh, judicial functions, judicial power within those territories because of its uh, enormous power over uh, over uh, to create you know functioning governments in those territories. In the military, Congress has a vast control over the military that allows it to create a separate military judicial power. So the militaries are the military courts are exercising an actual judicial power through the Congress's vast uh, authority over the military, um, but they're they're not they're, even though they're not within um, Article 3 for this historical reason. So they're, so they're not part of the judicial power that's assigned to the federal judiciary. It's a separate judicial power that comes from Congress's vast uh, authority to uh, to um, create uh, rules for um, for governing the uh, the armed forces. Um, and uh, and and so that's that's kind of his explanation. Now he goes on to say that that um, the whether something is or is not a judicial power that's being exercised. He says it's a functionalist examination. So it, so whether something is judicial power depends on what is being done. And he says here these are these are these are courts. They're courts acting like courts. So this is judicial power, um, regardless of where that exercise is coming from. And then from there he goes to the administrative agencies. Now this the, the, um and and he and he points to the agencies operating within uh, the executive branch and adjudications that happen within those agencies. And what he says here, and this is kind of a, a radical position um, that he's taking out here, he, he says those administrative agencies, even though they're fully within 
the uh, executive branch, they are also exercising judicial power by functioning in this court-like manner uh, and adjudicating cases. Um, however, he says the difference between those and the military is that those are unconstitutional exercises of judicial power, where the military, for these historical reasons and Congress's broad power of the military, are constitutional. Um, so he, he's kind of taking uh, this opportunity in this particular case to uh, stake out a very strong position against um, the constitutionality of administ- administrative adjudication. It's kind of something that's not an issue in this case at all. It's a totally separate issue, but but he um, uh, uh, is using this opportunity to kind of opine on that in, in discussing um, the relationship between judicial power in general and the federal, uh, uh, the Article III um, judicial power. So that brings me to the dissent, and here the dissent is written by uh, Justice Alito, uh, joined by Justice Gorsuch, and this opinion is a very uh, uh, it's a, about a formalist division of of power between the branches under the federal constitution. He says that basically the federal courts exercise the Article Three judicial power, um, and he says the state courts exercise the state judicial power. Now, the territorial courts, those are legitimate because they're exercising the judicial power of those territorial governments. And by creating an entirely new government, Congress has the the power to create governments for these territories. And those territories come with the full range of legislative judicial power, etc. So those territorial courts are exercise judicial power by virtue of being part of a separate territorial government. But he says executive branch adjudication can never be judicial power. Congress cannot place judicial power within the executive branch. Um, and, and from there, he, he says that, 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 that governs the military in this case. The military is clearly, um, part of the executive branch. It's, it's, it's within the executive chain of command. It's always been considered part of the executive branch. It reports directly to the president. Um, and as such, it cannot be exercising judicial power. Um, he points to the requirements. What, what does it mean for something to be under the Article Three judicial power? Um, the key requirements of, of that are that the judges, the, the, in order for someone to be a, a, a Article Three judge, a judge that, 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 that hears, uh, uh, exercises the federal judicial power, has to be a judge with life tenure and salary protection. Um, and, and that's the, the, the status of all the federal judges from the, the, the district judges all the way up to the Supreme Court. But he points here to the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. He says the judges there serve a fixed 15-year term. Um, they're not, uh, not, they don't have this life tenure, um, that federal, that, that Article III judges have. Um, and, and he, he says, uh, he says in this case, uh, there wasn't an Article III case, there wasn't an exercise of Article III judicial power until the cert petition, until it came up to the Supreme Court. And uh, so, so he says this this can't be an appeal. And he accuses the majority here of ignoring uh, what he says are, are 200 years of history here. And he points to other um, courts that had been within um, other branches of the, uh, the the government within the the um, uh, and, and one is the the Court of Claims, and and he uh, which which is a court that hears uh, claims against the federal government, claims for for. Uh, money from the federal government, and uh, the the Supreme Court had held um, early in, uh, um, when the Court of Claims was not staffed by Article Three judges um, that the Supreme Court could not exercise appellate jurisdiction um, over that court. And uh, later, uh, that court was that, and that court also was was uh, subject to review um, by the Secretary of the Treasury. Um, so it was, it was under the executive branch. Um, the court said it could not, the court could not exercise appellate jurisdiction. Later, Congress amended, um, uh, 
the uh, statutes to remove that kind of review and to place it into uh, Article 3 completely. And then at that point, the court said that that was now reviewable um, on appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, there's other precedents that Alito points to in the habeas corpus area and in military tribunals. Um where uh, appeals uh, to the Supreme Court were rejected because they were not within the uh, exercise of Article Three judicial power. Um, so, so he, he says, under this historical understanding, um, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces should be outside of that. Now, he goes on to talk about the D.C., the District, District of Columbia, and territorial courts, and and he he says here that um, there, there's there's long-standing precedent. That the Article Three's grant of judicial authority to the uh, to to uh, um, definition of judicial authority uh, basically excluded territorial governments because that power to create a whole new government is kind of a special authority that Congress has. But he rejects any analogy um, from that to the military. He says the military, unlike these territorial governments, the military is not a government unto itself. It's firmly situated within the executive branch. Um, and he points to some other uh, things. For example, um, the uh, courts martial are exempted from other constitutional provisions that govern the judiciary. Um, for example, the, the right to a jury trial. And in fact, until 1920, the president and certain commanding officers could actually impose harsher punishments than had been imposed in the courts martial. They could step in and do that. So he's saying that, that, that it's clear that this is long been considered part of the executive branch, part of the power to try and punish military offenses, um, which is entirely independent of the Article Three judiciary and just and not part of the the, uh, the federal judicial power. Um, and uh, he 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 argues that that there's really no principal distinction between the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces and um, administrative adjudication, and and uh, the the fact that, that you can't. Um, uh, appeal administrative adjudications directly to the Supreme Court. Those are, have to be appealed to lower courts. The same thing should apply to the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. So that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, the sentence in this case. Now I want to talk briefly about the consolidated cases. I mentioned that there were originally three cases together, Ortiz along with Dalmazi and Cox. Now a footnote in the Ortiz opinion just says very briefly, it says, it refers to those two cases and says, Quote, those cases raise issues of statutory jurisdiction that our disposition today makes it unnecessary to resolve. And then the court uh, issued separate orders um, dismissing each of those two cases as improvidently granted. So just basically, basically um, getting rid of those cases, saying it never should have taken those cases and uh, and sending them, uh, sending them away. Now, what happened in those cases is that in each of those two cases, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces had originally um, uh, agreed to hear those cases on appeal from the CCA. Um, but it turned out in each of those cases, the, um, the commission for the judge, the judge who had been appointed to sit on the CMCR um, in, in each of those cases, uh, the commission for that, that office, the commission to sit on the CMCR had not been signed at the time when each of those judges had uh, ruled on the case at the CCA. Um, so the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces said because of that timing issue, because at the time when they ruled in the CCA case, they weren't yet on the CMCR, that this issue just, uh, it was, it was moot. It didn't, 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 um, uh, this conflict didn't come up. So the CAAF, because of that, it vacated its grant of these cases from the CCA. So it said, it decided, it changed its mind, decided not to hear the appeal from the CCA, denied the petitions, 
um, and said it, it refused to hear those. So again, so the CAAF, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, has a discretionary review of lower lower military cases. It doesn't have to take cases. It's like the Supreme Court. It picks and chooses which cases it wants to hear. So it ends up making the discretionary determination after the fact. It said it changed its mind. Said I'm not going to grant this case and and denied the the, the petitions. Um, now. The Supreme Court jurisdiction, statutory jurisdiction to hear courses from the CAAF, um, it, it, it can, it can, uh, hear decisions of the CAAF, but the argument here is there's no decision of the CAAF, there's just that discretionary, unreviewable discretionary, unreviewable discretionary determination of whether to hear a case in the first place, so that's not reviewable by the Supreme Court. So that was one of the issues in the case, these cases that the court would have had to dealt with, to deal with, was whether the fact that the CAAF um, denied the petitions after the fact and decided not to hear these cases, whether that prevented the Supreme Court from getting into it. Well, the Supreme Court said, since we decided in Ortiz, that there's no problem here anyway, and there's no issue. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to try and uh, decide this other question of whether we can even review these cases. We're just going to throw them out, and that's what the court did. So that gets me to the end of Ortiz and brings me to the fourth and final um, case that was uh, handed down on Friday, and that case is Carpenter v. United States. And this is a case about the uh, the um, government the government's access to cell site location information, uh, abbreviated sometimes as uh, CSLI in the uh, in the opinions here. And what that is, is that's that's information about which um, cell tower uh, a, a particular phone is connected to at any given point in time. And um, and the the uh, the carriers, the cell carriers, they have historical information on this, which can indicate for any particular phone what tower that phone was in communication with at any point in time uh, going back for, you know, uh, presumably the uh, the length of the uh, the contract with that carrier. Um, and the issue in this case was whether the government can obtain that information without a warrant. Um, and this this split five to four. Uh, the majority was written by Justice Roberts, joined by the four more liberal justices on, on the court. And then um, the four other conservative justices were in dissent, and each of them wrote a separate dissent here. Justice Kennedy wrote the the the, the principal dissent, joined by Justice Thomas Thomas and Alito. Justice Thomas wrote his own dissent. Justice Alito wrote a dissent, joined by Justice Thomas, and then Justice Gorsuch wrote his own final dissent. And Justice Gorsuch, as we'll see, his is quite a bit different. Um, and it's been characterized by many commenters as as practically uh, a concurrence in disguise rather than really a dissent. And uh, we'll talk about that when we get to it. Um, but first, the basic... Uh, the basic facts of this case, the, the, the criminal defendant in this case was Timothy Carpenter. And um, he was, uh, he was uh, alleged to be involved in the armed robberies of a number of retail stores, including actually some cell phone stores. Um, and there were, there were robberies, uh, about nine robberies, and Carpenter was uh, um, alleged to be the ringleader of these robberies. Uh, some of the, the uh, um, people who were picked up by the police for their involvement in these robberies um, named Carpenter as the as the, uh, the the brains behind the operation. Now, in order to help prove their case, the government obtained from Carpenter's um, cell carrier, he, he obtained location data. And at trial, uh, showed, uh, provided, uh, showed the jury that he was, uh, his cell phone was connected to a tower in close proximity to several of the different, different um, uh, robbery sites at the time of the robberies. 
and he was not normally in those vicinities. So he's saying basically it's quite a coincidence that he just happens to be at these widely, um, these, uh, these locations which were in widely, uh, dispersed, uh, 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 spots in in two different states he happened to be there at multiple places at the time when the robberies were occurring so that was the evidence they used now he challenged this as a um violation of his fourth amendment rights now how did the government get this this data well under a federal statute called the stored communications act uh the government was able to go to the cell carriers and and actually go to a, a magistrate judge and get an order um ordering the uh the carriers to turn over uh, that information. So under the Stored Communications Act, a magistrate ruled that the, uh, the government, um, could, could access this information and the cell, um, carriers turn this, this over. And, uh, Carpenter argued this violates the Fourth Amendment. He, the, he says the government needs a warrant, uh, in order to obtain this information. So let me run through this. Uh, there's, again, there's five separate opinions in this case because each of the dissenters wrote, wrote a separate dissent. Um, so this ended up being very lengthy that all the opinions together ran to 119 pages. I'll try and run relatively quickly through it all just to, just to, uh, to get us through this. But Justice Roberts again wrote the majority. And he says that this, uh, the, this, uh, basically the court's, um, rule in this area, the court's rule is, uh, to ask whether there's a reasonable expectation of privacy, um, over, uh, whatever intrusion the government is, uh, is involved in. And he says that there's a couple purposes here. It's supposed to secure, um, privacies against arbitrary government power. And it's also supposed to place obstacles in the way of, of, uh, of, of a kind of a total police surveillance of the, pu- of the public. Um, he says this is a historically informed test, but it has to be adapted to the increased technological surveillance uh, that's a, that's uh, um, possible with uh, with modern technology. And he points to two lines of cases that he says are relevant here, and one is a set of cases that that, that he says stand for the idea that that location information that there's a privacy strong privacy information. Uh, privacy interest in location information. And the key case here is from a few years back called United States v. Jones and involved the government placing a GPS tracker on someone's car to uh, to follow where that car uh, traveled for an extended period of time. And the court struck that down saying that that violated um, the Fourth Amendment. Uh, the other uh, line of cases is, is something known as the third-party doctrine. And the third-party doctrine is the, 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 the general idea behind this doctrine is when someone provides information to a, 30, a third party, um, then they lose the expectation of privacy uh, in that data, and and uh, and they don't have um, it, it. Basically, removes it from the protection of the Fourth Amendment because they they have no reasonable expectation of privacy. And the key cases in that was was a case called United States v. Miller, and that involved a subpoena for bank records in order for the government to try and prove tax evasion. The court in that case said there was just no expectation of privacy in information that had been voluntarily shared with the bank, so that financial information could be seized just through a simple subpoena. And the second case is called Smith v. Maryland. And in this case, the government used something called a pen register, which is just a, a device that um, intercepts numbers that are dialed on a telephone. So to determine who somebody is calling, it's not a wiretap where some, they can actually listen in on the, re, the, uh, on the conversation, but it indicates who someone is calling. And the court said, again, there's no expectation of privacy in the numbers because the number you're dialing is necessarily shared with the phone company in order to complete that call. And so that's information you've voluntarily given to another party so the government can go and get that information. Now, Justice Roberts says, 
looking at that third party doctrine and the Smith and Miller cases, he says, we decline to extend Smith and Miller to cover, cover these novel circumstances. And here the novel circumstances he's referring to are the ubiquity of, uh, of cell phones and, uh, and the, the, and this location data that can cover um, all of a person's movements over uh, enormous uh, periods of time, um, and so he, he says. He says, uh, under these circumstances, the this third party doctrine, the, the Smith and Miller idea, um, that when uh, information is in the possession of a third party, there's no expectation of privacy. It just doesn't um, doesn't apply in this setting. He 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 um, notes the the kind of all encompassing record of a phone holder's whereabouts that are available in these, and he he says he, here's a quote. He says quote. The timestamped data provides an intimate window into a person's life, revealing not only his particular movements, but through them his familial, political, professional, religious, and sexual associations. Um, and he also points to the the ease of obtaining these from cell carriers. He says, just with a push of a button, this uh, information can be uh, can be um, downloaded. And also, the fact that this is a retrospective capability, so the government doesn't have to decide up front that it wants to surveil someone. Um, they can decide after the fact and collect years potentially worth of data on every place that someone went carrying their cell phone. Um, so he says that in in this uh, context, that obtaining this information invades the reasonable expectation of privacy in that someone has in their own physical movements. And he he talks about the the third party doctrine cases and says basically the data in question here is much more revealing than the information in previous third party doctrine cases. Um, and he also says, referring to those Miller and Smith cases, he says those cases weren't just about sharing the information with a third party. They also involved consideration of the specific privacy informa- privacy interest in the types of information being sought. Um, and so he says, really, it's kind of a balancing situation. And here, the privacy interests are much stronger. And so that changes the calculus here. And he also says here, it's not really a voluntary disclosure because cell phones for many people are indispensable. Um, and the location data, uh, the transmittal of the location data to the cell provider happens automatically without any user inf- in interaction. So we can't really call this, he says, an, a voluntary disclosure to the third party cell phone carrier. Now, um, he says that this is a narrow in scope, and he specifically carves out certain things he's not ruling on. He says, um, he says that the court uh, here, the the the, the smallest um, uh, period of time that was sought from one of the cell phone cell phone carriers was a seven day period of time, and he says we're not ruling on whether a shorter period of time um, would be also protected. Uh, he also says he's not ruling on real time. Um, uh, cell site location information. So if they're trying to uh, find out where someone is in real time, is that governed by the same um, requirement of a warrant? He He's leaving that open. And also, um, he's he's not ruling on uh, what's what are referred to as tower dumps. Now, a tower dump is instead of saying, here's one phone number, I want to track where this was at all times, you say, here's one tower, I want to track every phone that connected to it within some some period of time. So it's kind of coming at it from the opposite direction. And he doesn't rule on that. He kind of leaves those open, doesn't give any indication of which way they would they would go. So uh, anyway, moving on, having found that there is a reasonable expectation of privacy, he says this is a search under the Fourth Amendment. So is a warrant required? Um, the, the Fourth Amendment standard is uh, that searches must be reasonable. It protects from unreasonable searches, but generally warrantless searches are considered to be unreasonable unless they fall in a specific ex- exception. Um, and, um, and and here, here he says that uh, the, the standard here, the, the Stored Communications Act, 
which was the standard applied here, um, it re- required only reasonable grounds for believing records were relevant and material to an ongoing investigation. And he says that this is well below the normal probable cause standard that applies uh, under the Fourth Amendment, um, which generally requires some sort of individualized suspicion at least. And so he says that, that here that's not that's not reasonable and and a warrant um, should be required. Um, and uh, he, he also holds open that there may be um, what are known as exigent circumstances that still apply. So exigent circumstances are, are an exception to the normal warrant requirement under the Fourth Amendment. And this covers things like hot pursuit, for example, or if there's a risk of imminent harm. So things like that, uh, he says, he says they may still apply. So there might be exceptions to this in particular cases where a warrant isn't required if, uh, if the, the, uh, the law enforcement has to act fast um, because of some special circumstances. So that's uh, that's the majority uh, here. So now let's move on and, and, and work through uh, each of the dissents in this case. We'll start with uh, Justice Kennedy's dissent. Now, Justice Kennedy says that there's, there's two general doctrines that govern this case. He says this is governed by the third-party doctrine and by the uh, business records, uh, the normal treatment under the Fourth Amendment is business records. And he, he, he says basically here, here, he says customers like petition, this is a quote, Customers like Petitioner do not own, possess, control, or use the records, and for that reason, they have no reasonable expectation that they cannot be disclosed. Um, and he, he also says that some of the distinctions the majority draws, the distinction between this uh, cell site location information and, for example, phone numbers dialed or credit card records, is an arbitrary distinction um, that just uh, that doesn't doesn't make sense. Um, and what he says here is the Miller and Smith cases, the third-party doctrine cases, they dictate the answer in this case. He says individuals, and this is a quote, individuals lack any protected Fourth Amendment interests in records that are possessed, owned, and controlled only by a third party. Um, and he says that there's a couple important reasons for this third-party doctrine. He says, first, it places some necessary limits on uh, the ability of uh, of defendants to claim a Fourth Amendment interest uh, in property which they 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 lack a, a a quote requisite connection to. So he says the the court has to draw a line somewhere, and this third party doctrine is a place to to draw that that line. Um, and and, he, and he, he points to some factors of it. For example, the fact that a business can use this information for its own purposes, um, and so the customer doesn't have this uh, strong interest in how that information or data is used. Uh, and also, he, he points to this. The second factor is um, the the uh, the use of compulsory process to obtain records. Now, compulsory process means um, certain legal. Uh, tools that allow someone to demand records from another party. And this is uh, generally, uh, we're talking about subpoenas. So um, so subpoenas are used in a wide variety of situations, including civil litigation, grand jury investigations, and, and uh, various other contexts like national security investigations. And they allow the government to obtain uh, all manner of, of records from, from businesses, from individuals, um, by requesting that information. And he says there's a long-standing distinction between compulsory processes, so subpoenas, and searches under the Fourth Amendment. A subpoena is less intrusive than uh, than a search, uh, than the execution of a warrant, um, because uh, subpoenas allow the party who's being collected from to, to do the collection themselves. The government demands that you turn certain things over, but they're not actually physically invading and rifling through all of your papers and documents. And they also give an opportunity for the, uh, the party who's subject to the subpoena to um, make objections before they have to execute it rather than a uh, search warrant where you can only complain after the fact, after everything's already been uh, rifled through. Um, 
And uh, Kennedy says these are just these are just very different situations, and a subpoena is governed by a reasonableness standard, uh, not by this uh, probable cause that applies to searches under the Fourth Amendment. And subpoenas are regularly used for business records that repeal, reveal all sorts of private information for credit card purchases, hotel records, employment files, things like that. They may have very revealing private information, but subpoenas are used for those things all the time. And he says there's just no merit to carve out a special exception for the cell site location information. Um, and um, he, he, say, he says the Stored Communications Act, unlike many mere subpoenas, actually requires approval by a magistrate. So there's actually more protection than many subpoenas. Um, and he criticizes the majority's use of, of the Miller and Smith uh, third-party doctrine. He says that they, that they they make this doctrine unprincipled and unworkable. So um, Kennedy rejects this idea of a general private, privacy expectation in physical movements. He says that normally the, the court has said in, in the past that there just there is no privacy when in, when someone is moving about in public where they're they're in public view. Um, he also says that the Miller and Smith don't support uh, this kind of category by category balancing of privacy interests. Rather, it's 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 a very um, across the board rule, um, and uh, and the court is not. Um, following it faithfully by by um, saying that you need to balancing it balance it category by category, um, and then he he says he he points to he again it compares it he says this kind of location data, especially at the the resolution that these uh, cell site location um, data is right now, and and he he makes much of the fact that these don't really pinpoint a specific location like GPS, but they just give kind of a a general uh, large range which may cover uh, many uh, dozens or hundreds of city blocks. Um, he says that that's much less revealing than things like credit card or telephone data. Um, here's a quote. He says, quote, the troves of infinite, uh, sorry, the troves of intimate information the government can and does obtain using financial records and telephone records dwarfs what can be gathered from cell site records. Um, and he says here, the court shouldn't be rushing in to set rules for areas that are undergoing rapid technological change. That's something that's better left to legislative judgments. And here, the legislature has enacted the Stored Communications Act, so that should solve the, the, the issue. And he says the majority basically leaves a number of open issues um, that it doesn't resolve. It doesn't explain what it is that makes something a distinct category of information for purposes of third-party doctrine. So until now, um, courts have, lower courts have generally applied the third-party doctrine by just uh, a simple rule. Just is this information possessed by a third party? If so, then there's no reasonable expectation of privacy. Well, what makes something a distinct category separate from, for, from, for example, uh, financial records or things like that that, that requires requires the court to to kind of rebalance it. He also complains that there's no guidance on how to actually conduct this balance and no guidance on what scope of collection is uh, is acceptable, uh, pointing out that the majority itself um, says it's not ruling on, for example, less than seven days worth of collection or real-time collection or these tower dumps. And he also says that the, it, it, the majority calls into question the standard, uh, standard subpoena practice um, and uh, and the majority doesn't really even consider or, or address the issue, and, and just uh, basically, it's going to call into question subpoenas in a wide variety of areas. Um, so that that's uh, that's Kennedy's uh, principal dissent. So let me move on to to the other dissents. So Justice Thomas dissents. Now Justice Thomas 
rejects the cat's reasonable expectation of privacy test. So he takes this opportunity to, um, to, uh, basically complain that the cat's test is not a good test. He says that this test was basically made up out of whole cloth in the cat's case. There was no basis in, uh, prior case law or the fourth amendment, um, for, for using this reasonable expectation of privacy test. And it, as a result, it, it treats as searches many things that, that really are not because there, there's no actual search involved. There's just a, some privacy interest. Um, and he says that, that basically this test, this reasonable expectation of privacy test that the court has applied, um, uh, for a while, um, since the 1960s, he says this test, it doesn't um, fit with uh, basically any of the terms of the Fourth Amendment itself. He says, first of all, it, the, this test says it, it protects an expectation of privacy. But the Fourth Amendment is written in terms of protecting things like houses, papers, and effects, which reflects um, reflects an interest in protecting the security of property, not privacy um, kind of broadly. He says that basically this this reasonable expectation of privacy reads the the terms uh, persons, houses, papers, and effects out of the Fourth Amendment, effectively replacing them with anywhere and anything um, where someone has an in, a privacy interest. It also uh, he says it, the word there it it protects people in their houses, papers, and effects, and he says that, that indicates that this doesn't doesn't. Um, doesn't provide protection to other people's properties. Um, and here he says Carpenter can't show any property interest in the cell site data. Um, and so, but, but the reasonable expectation of privacy, uh, goes beyond the, someone's own, uh, something they possess, their own papers and effects. Um, and also he talks about reasonable. He says in the fourth amendment, uh, reasonable refers to the reasonableness of a search. But here, it's the reasonableness of an expectation of privacy, which is something completely different and looking at it from a totally different ang- angle. He also says the CATS test, this reasonable expectation of privacy test, is unworkable in practice. He says the court has, this is a quote, the court, this court has steadfastly declined to elaborate the relevant considerations or identify any meaningful constraints. Um, and, he, and he argues that that there's even kind of two different understandings of the reasonable expectation of privacy test in practice. Um, it, it sometimes uh, seems to be treated as a descriptive idea. So do people as a descriptive matter actually have um, an expectation of privacy, a reasonable expectation of privacy? Um, and in, in this, in this application, when, when, if you're using it as kind of a descriptive claim, it's kind of circular because um, whether the courts have found that someone has a reasonable ex- expectation kind of determines whether people actually do have an expectation of privacy. Um, and it also allows circumvention because if the government kind of does things to intrude on people's privacy, then that reduces people's expectation of privacy. Um, but he says that as it's, all, as it's typically applied, the courts actually apply it just as kind of their own normative judgment about what should or should not be accepted in terms of invasions of privacy. And so he says basically this cat's uh, um, doctrine, this uh, reasonable expectation of privacy doctrine should be completely reconsidered. Um, but until it is, he agrees with Kennedy's uh, dissent that that, uh, that that's the appropriate um, application of the, the current precedent as it stands right now. I, I think I, I realized as I was going through that, that I mentioned cats a number of times without explaining what I was talking about. And cats just refers to a, a Supreme Court case from the 1960s where they first established this reasonable expectation of privacy standard, um, rejecting a uh, prior approach, which relied largely on property concepts on, 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 uh, uh, 
on a property rights kind of view. And that extended um, the uh, Fourth Amendment's protection to someone who was uh, speaking inside a phone booth where a, uh, a listening device was placed outside of that phone booth, but was recording that person's conversation. And the court, despite there being a, not not a, uh, a formal property right, the court said there's a reasonable expectation of, expectation of privacy in that context. And, uh, and that kind of established that test. So that's what I mean when I've been referring to cats through here. I should have uh, explained that up front, but, um, but that's what that means. So let me move on now. I've got two more uh, dissents to run through. Uh, Justice Alito had his own dissent. Um, and he complains, and he's really focused on this subpoena issue that I mentioned before. He says that this court's de- decision is really um, just upending Fourth Amendment law. He says that there's a longstanding distinction between searches and orders to produce information, subpoenas and other forms of compulsory process. And he says... Now, because of this decision, subpoenas in a huge number of different contexts are potentially subject to challenge um, as not being uh, uh, not being based on probable cause or requiring a warrant. Um, and he also complains, in addition to the subpoena issue, uh, about the um, the failure to distinguish between third party property. So uh, he goes through a long kind of historic. Um, uh, uh, discussion of the evolution of subpoenas, um, running through, going back, back, uh, back into uh, English common law history, but, but then uh, continuing through the American founding, he notes that subpoenas were authorized in the first Judiciary Act of 1789. That's the, the act of the first Congress of the United States that established the judici- the judicial branch in the first place. And he says that uh, the subpoenas are, are just ubiquitous. They're essential to the functioning of grand juries, and grand juries were themselves explicitly protected uh, in the Bill of Rights, uh, the right to be indicted by a grand jury. Um, and he says that the history of the Fourth Amendment is clear that it just it didn't apply to subpoenas or other types of compulsory process or things like, for example, compelling someone to testify. Um, the Fourth Amendment uh, just had no application to those things. And he says that the court's modern case law um, though it's provided some Fourth Amendment protection to compulsory process, it distinguishes between um, subpoenas, compulsory process, and searches, and it has a much less stringent standard for subpoenas and, and has never required probable cause. And he, so he says here the court has basically abandoned all of that um, history in this in this particular case. And then he goes on to talk about the issue of third-party searches. Again, he says Carpenter had no property rights in the records, and um, he says that he characterizes the Miller and Smith third party cases very differently. He says basically his, his, his reading of the case, those cases is that Miller and Smith didn't create some new third party rule. Rather, they, they simply prevented the extension of the cat's reasonable expectation of privacy concept to new areas that had been previously unprotected by the fourth amendment. So, so he, he review he um, reads Miller and Smith as just kind of constraining the expansion of the reasonable expectation of privacy idea. I'm not um, creating some new third-party um, uh, category. And he basically says there's two possible outcomes of the court's decision today. One of those possible outcomes is that this decision will, will end up crippling the, the, the normal subpoena processes that, that, are, that are involved in, in all different um, uh, uh, contexts within uh, the government and, and uh, uh, litigation and, uh, and court proceedings. Um, because if, if this uh, decision is extended to all these other types of um, subpoenas, uh, it would just just be a radical change to the current uh, operation. But he also says that, that the the other um, likely possibility is that in future cases, the court will just repeatedly distinguish any future challenges to uh, compulsory process uh, and just uh, continue to to uh, find ways why they're different from this case because it'll have to uh, have to confront the fact when when uh, in future cases that it it uh, it's 
um, disregard for the uh, the distinction between um, subpoenas and and searches um, has uh, would would have such wide reaching and, and broad effects. And then finally, he says that he he and this is this is a view that Justice Alito has expressed in other cases uh, as well. He the, he has a view that. Really, in these uh, these uh, Fourth Amendment areas, legislation should be seen as the preferred way to strike appropriate balances. He says that the legislature is better suited to balance the uh, you know competing interests and 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 uh, strike a balance. And he said here the Stored Communications Act already did that, and that that should be the legal standard. That should that should um, that should have ended the matter. So that brings me to the final dissent, and this is Justice Gorsuch, and uh, he has a, a very interesting um, approach. And he basically, uh, he divides, his opinion is divided into kind of three parts. He says there's really three potential ways the court, court could go here. Um, and the, the, uh, the one is to, uh, to apply the third party doctrine, the Smith and Miller third party doctrine. Um, to resolve the case. The second uh, opportunity uh, possibility is to uh, reject that Smith and Miller third party doctrine and apply the cat's reasonable expectation of privacy standard. So that's kind of the majority justice Roberts's approach. And then the third possibility is to, to uh, reject both of those ideas and go in a different direction. And that's what Gorsuch pushes here, but he first runs through the first two options. First, he rejects the the Smith and Miller third party doctrine. Um, uh, he suggests that this this is just it's a bad guide to people's actual privacy expectations, and it's been justified in various ways. But he doesn't think any of those justifications really hold up. Um, sometimes it's put in the language of assuming the risk when you give um, information to a third party, you assume the risk that it will be exposed to the government. Um, and he, he says. That that that's that's a, that uh, idea is just a bad fit. Normally, the idea of assuming the risk it's an idea that comes from tort law and says that if uh, there's some risk that you're aware of and and you uh, you go f- um, forward with some action anyway, knowing that that risk is there, then you're assuming the danger of that. But he says that that's not the same um, as the situation here when you may have, for example, contracts or agreements with the third party that you're giving the data with that prevents them from um, uh, from revealing that information to third parties, just knowing the possibility that someone might um, breach those contractual terms or violate a trust or things like that doesn't mean you're assuming the risk that that's going to happen. He also says that sometimes uh, it's it's put in terms of consent. Um, but he says this doesn't apply either because the you know consenting to give data to a third party doesn't imply that you consent to have them further turn this information over to the government. And he says it's also sometimes um, uh, justified on the basis of clarity. Uh, it's a, it's a bright line rule when data is in possession of a third party, and then the fourth amendment doesn't apply. And here's a quote here. He says, quote, you and the police know exactly how much protection you have in information confided to others. None. As rules go, the king always wins is admirably clear. And he goes on to say that just the fact that it's clear doesn't mean it's right. And you could, you could, you could make the argument the opposite way saying that, uh, the fourth amendment should always apply when it's, uh, data is in the protection of, in, in the hands of a third party. And that would be just as clear. Um, so, so there's no, uh, reason there to, to prefer one side of the, of the, the, uh, one side over the other. So he goes on there from there to discuss the cat's reasonable expectation of privacy standard. And he complains uh, on several grounds about that. He says that this standard is not grounded in the constitution or early American history. And he points to justice Thomas's, uh, 
um, discussion for that. And he also says it's just not clear what it's supposed to measure. Is this an empirical question, whether people actually have an expectation of privacy? He says if it is, well, first, there's no evidence that it actually matches people's real expectations. And second, uh, aren't legislatures better situated to kind of study that question in detail and come to a better uh, decision on, on what people's actual expectations are than the courts are? Um, but in fact, if it's actually a normative question, if it's if it's a policy judgment over kind of what people should be able to expect, what should people uh, reasonably be able to expect as far as their privacy is concerned, well, that, if that's a matter of pure policy judgments, then that's something that is definitely better suited for a legislature rather than the courts to decide. And um, he, he says... Uh, he also says that the actual application of the CATS test is unpredictable and unbelievable. Um, and he points to certain uh, results that the court has found under this reasonable expectation of privacy test and says that they're frankly uh, ridiculous. And here, here's a quote from his case. This is quote, take Florida v. Riley, which says that a police helicopter hovering 400 feet above a person's property invades no reasonable expectation of privacy. Try that one out on your neighbors. So that's a, you know, a good line he has there, but, but pointing out that it, it's, it has resulted in some, some, um, uh, kind of unexpected, uh, um, results that probably would not, um, fit with, with, uh, with, uh, uh most people's intuitions about what a reasonable ex- expectation of privacy is. And then he complains that here in this particular case, the court just provides very little guidance about how it's supposed to apply. What level of access to someone's information becomes an arbitrary exercise of government power? When does surveillance become too permeating? Uh, and, and, and he says that, that, you know, the court, the, the majority refuses to answer, um, some questions that, that, uh, to Gorsuch, it seems like should be, um, pretty basic. So for example, what about a shorter time frame? If this hadn't been seven days or more of collection, but it had been a shorter time frame, what if someone was seeking real time location data or these tower dumps? The, the majority just won't even answer those questions. Um, so, so he thinks, uh, this, this, uh, cat's standard just, uh, is not, is not, uh, uh, should be rejected and is not the right way to go. So having rejected the, the other two, uh, approaches, um, that the, the majority and the other dissenters, um, have, uh, advocated here, where does Justice Gorsuch go? He advocates something that's become known as the positive law model. And this is basically the idea, positive law, it's the idea that the, the laws governing people's general actions, and this would include property law, but it could also include um, other statutory law that provides um, people with certain uh, types of uh, um, privacy protections. Um, that law, referred to as positive law, is a law enacted by legislatures or uh, or, um, uh, or, or by courts acting in a common law fashion. That positive law would provide the um, the the uh, baseline for for Fourth Amendment protection. Now, he says that this model, this is kind of, this has been advocated by several academics in recent years and has gotten a lot of attention as kind of a, 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 a um, new approach to Fourth Amendment that's attractive um, to, to many people with kind of a formalist bent uh, who, who like, uh, you know, using formal legal categories to uh, resolve a lot of um, uh, constitutional uh, questions. Um, and Gorsuch says that there's that this, this model, there are a lot of open questions about the application of this model that still have to be answered. And then, but here's a quote. He says, quote, I do not begin to claim all the answers today, but unlike with cats, at least I have a pretty good idea what the questions are. 
And then he goes on to kind of run through what he sees as some of the implications of this positive law model. He says, uh, he goes through a bunch of them. He says, first of all, he says that uh, third parties' access to information doesn't eliminate property interests in it. And he refers for that to a, a, a very old bail, uh, property concept known as a bailment. That's the idea of when property um, is given to a third party to hold for some purpose. Sometimes that's for the third party's purpose. Sometimes it's for the purpose of the person who's giving that property. Um, and, and it's, it's a very old concept that actually goes back to, uh, all the way back to ancient Roman law. Um, and he, he says that, that this concept, uh, it's a very old property concept and it's also, it's already reflected in some parts of the court's fourth amendment law. Um, specifically the law of mailed letters. When you, um, mail an enclosed envelope, um, the government is not allowed to uh, open and look inside that mail um, because the it's uh, it's it's protected, and even though the government is in full possession, so you've given this to a third party, um, and he says this is a, an example of a bailment um, where uh, the fact that the government has possession of a third party doesn't uh, remove the privacy protection that comes with the the uh, uh, from the the sender uh, of that mail, um, and he also says that complete ownership and control is not necessary for Fourth Amendment protection. And here he points to um, houses and says that houses are protected and tenants uh, who do not own the property or resident family members uh, still have Fourth Amendment protection even though they don't have ownership of the uh, the property in question. And he also says, he, in, in going through that, he says that the fact that you have to pr- surrender possession for some purpose doesn't mean you're giving up all rights to it. Um, so then he, he goes on to say that Positive law, so statutes and things like that, can provide detailed guidance without having to rely on judicial intuitions. And he says that state law is often actively um, providing new protections, both through uh, common law development in state courts and through legislative action, um, to protect people's privacy in various different ways. Um, and that's that's just an ongoing practice in various different places around the country all the time. And allowing that to play out and allowing the the uh, the um, uh, for example, a state government to to uh, pass laws prohibiting cell phone providers from uh, using uh, the data in certain ways. Well, that would that would uh, create an, a uh, a new positive law baseline that would uh, guide the Fourth Amendment inquiry. Um, but on the other hand, he says that although positive law could create new protections, it can't always destroy existing protections. For example, he says the government couldn't pass a law authorizing mail carriers to open people's mail because uh, um, that would that would invade uh, what is otherwise a a, a, a floor a constitutional floor um, that people have um, so so he he he, uh, he says that there's a there's a limit to, to the the extent that the government could um, destroy protections that, that otherwise would exist and he also building on that idea he says that this idea of a constitutional floor could bar the use of um, compulsory process, so this is returning to that idea that, that uh, Justice Alito um, was talking about a lot, the uh, use of subpoenas and other compulsory process. This idea of a constitutional floor could bar using that kind of compulsory process to circumvent what the Fourth Amendment will otherwise protect. And he, again, returns to the idea of mailed letters and, and says you, you couldn't uh, issue a subpoena to a, uh, a postmaster um, to have them turn over uh, all of someone's letters. Um, because that would just that would just be an end run circumventing around the uh, the protection that otherwise exists there. Um, and then going on to, to the the facts of this specific case, he says, "quote So the, one question you may have is, given this discussion by Justice Gorsuch, why is this a dissent?" Well, he says, and he says, "quote It seems to me in." 
it seems to me entirely possible a person's cell site data could qualify as his papers or effects under existing law. Um, but Justice Gorsuch's issue is he says that Carpenter never uh, um, made these arguments uh, in, in the lower courts. He says, quote, before the district court and court of appeals, Mr. Carpenter pursued only a cat's reasonable expectations argument. And he, he basically says that, that the, even at the Supreme Court, this, uh, positive law argument was only made in kind of the most cursory way and wasn't really developed fully. Um, so he says, given that, he feels that he can't, um, decide it on those grounds in this case. He says, essentially, Carpenter basically forfeited, uh, this argument, this argument that Justice Gorsuch, uh, would have been very receptive to, forfeited it by not fully arguing this idea and making the case, um, under this positive law model. So this is basically Justice Gorsuch's, uh, uh, indication to uh, future litigants that if they want his vote in Fourth Amendment cases, um, they should really be uh, uh, making this this positive law argument. So, so this is uh, almost certainly this is an argument that's going to to uh, to keep reappearing in, in the future, if only because um, litigants want uh, the possibility of winning Justice Gorsuch's vote. Whether uh, it has any appeal beyond Gorsuch and, and any anyone else. Um, um, is is willing to adopt this uh is is uh more questionable and just remains to be seen in the future. So that brings us to the end of the four cases from Friday. Um uh again the court issued two more cases this morning along with uh granting some new cases for next term. The court has four more cases uh some of which will be issued tomorrow morning and we don't know when the court will uh will finish off hopefully Wednesday. Um again the tentative plan is I intend to uh, have another one of these live streams Wednesday night at um, at 9 p.m. That's uh, that's Wednesday, June 27th um, at 9 p.m. And the hope is to cover the six opinions, the remaining opinions, cover all of those, assuming they're all issued by Wednesday, uh, and get all the opinions out of the way. And then I'm hoping to have another live stream at the normal weekly time, Thursday at 9 p.m., to kind of wrap up the year. And in that one, I'll cover the, the new cases that were granted for next term and just some other uh, orders and developments of the court um, uh, and kind of wrap up our coverage of this term and do a little bit of a look ahead to next term. And a reminder, the six remaining cases uh, still are, well, uh, two cases were issued this morning. The four cases that are still outstanding that haven't come out, uh, there's still several major cases among those. Um, one is uh, Nifla v. Becerra, which is a case about California's FACT Act, which is, uh, requires uh, so-called crisis crisis pregnancy centers to uh, provide certain disclosures about the availability of abortions. That's one that's uh, it's kind of another, because it involves abortion, it's another um, uh, highly contentious political issue and uh, uh, kind of falls under the uh, culture war um, uh, category. Uh, but there's two other cases. Janice v. Asks Me. This is a case about um, union collective bargaining fees, and depending how it comes out, could uh, kind of have a major effect on unions' abilities to um, to collect uh, fees from non-members who are uh, re- represented in collective bargaining. Um, so that's a big case that's a kind of highly uh, anticipated and people are really waiting for. And then the, uh, the final one is uh, Trump v. Hawaii. This is the travel ban litigation about the legality and constitutionality of uh, uh, President Trump's um, travel ban, the, the, uh, the ban on entry into the country by uh, nationals of, uh, of certain countries. Uh, and those are all still, uh, you know, in the next few days, we should be getting all of those. So still a lot of uh, kind of high profile cases still waiting out there. So uh, I hope you'll join me uh, Wednesday and Thursday night to 
go through the rest of these cases and uh, kind of wrap up the term. Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to the audio podcast, I would love your feedback. You can leave comments on the show notes at countingto5.com, on the Counting to 5 YouTube channel or Facebook page. You can tweet at Counting to 5 or send an email to mike at countingto5.com. Please subscribe to the Counting to 5 YouTube channel or audio podcast to make sure you don't miss future episodes. And thank you for listening. This has been Counting to 5.